Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. Long before the current spate of legislation aimed at transgender people, and long before 1492, those who identified as neither male nor female, but both, flourished across hundreds of Native communities in the present-day United States. Called Akiska'a'i, Miata, Akichawe, and other tribally specific names, these people held important roles both in ceremony and in everyday life, before the violent arrival of Europeans threatened to wipe them out. In his new book, Reclaiming Two Spirits, historian Gregory Smithers sifts through hundreds of years of colonial archives, art, archaeological evidence, and oral storytelling to reveal how these indigenous communities resisted erasure and went on to reclaim their dual identities under the umbrella term Two Spirit. Gregory Smithers is professor of history at Virginia Commonwealth University and a British Academy Global Professor. Thank you so much for talking to me, Gregory. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. So how would you connect the long history of fluid gender expression in indigenous culture with the recent anti-trans and anti-gay bills in the United States? Yeah, when I was researching the, the book, a number of people said to me that we came from societies that didn't discard anyone. Many of those societies were matrilineal uh, in social and political structure. And even in many of the patrilineally structured societies that em embraced people of all different gender identities, once the Spanish and the French and the English start arriving, they bring with them, obviously, all of their religious scruples and emerging legal constructs about uh, gender and sexuality. They bring those from Europe and they try to impose those onto the American landscape. And... A lot of the people who uh, bring those those preconceived ideas uh, with them to the Americas bring with them, too, a sort of a, a recent history of violence, like physical violence. And so in that sense, what we're seeing right now is in some ways this sort of cyclical history that dates all the way back to the early 16th century when the Spanish set their dogs onto people that they labeled sodomites in Central America. It's this sort of concern with social order from a Eurocentric perspective and then seeing people with fluid gender and sexual identities as a threat to that prescribed order that certain groups of people in power or with a shaky grasp on power perceive around them. Um, and so they lash, have tended to lash out over the course of that history onto gender fluid, gender nonconforming people, as we understand those terms in a, in a Western sense. I mean, let's talk more about the term two-spirit, because mm -hmm. the idea, as you write about, is a very long one. And the book mm. is about how Indigenous Americans are reclaiming that identity. But I was surprised at how new the term actually is. It dates back to a very precise moment, the summer of 1990. What's the story there? Yeah, so there'd been a little bit of organizing dating back to the 1970s, particularly in, in San Francisco, and then in the 1980s in Minneapolis and other big cities around the United States. And what was emerging was a, was a recognition that terms like gay, lesbian, bisexual didn't really fit with the desire to reconnect with traditional knowledge knowledge that is sort of living and both has a sort of core set of principles about it, but also does change over time as well, hence the notion of living tradition. Uh, 
And so people who called themselves at the time gay and lesbian Indians were getting together in the late 1980s. And it was at the Winnipeg gathering that you refer to in 1990 uh, that the term two-spirit was agreed upon. There really is a magical moment in sort of modern, not just modern two-spirit history, but modern Native American history. The term that was identified was an Ojibwe term, and the Ojibwe are an Algonquin-speaking people, uh, and the term was Nij Manadouog. And what Nij Manadouog basically translates loosely as is both male and female spirits in a single person. And people at that gathering thought that that was sort of the ideal term to tie in all of the political issues that were going on uh, and affecting gay and lesbian Indians at the time, late 80s, early 90s. And remember, this is the era of the AIDS crisis, right? So there's an awful lot of fear about HIV AIDS, both inside and outside of Indian country, and just an awful amount of homophobia as well. So in in one sense, this was a political effort to try and deal with those issues, the AIDS pandemic and homophobia. At the same time, it was a language that those who embraced it thought they could use to educate both Native and non-Native people about the issues affecting people who were gay, lesbian, bisexual, trans in the 80s and 90s. At the same time, providing the space, hence the notion of an umbrella term that provides sort of the political space then to reconnect with specific tribal nation cultures and traditions. Um, so that was the idea. And it it took a little while for it to sort of gain traction um, through the 1990s. There was some pushback in some Native communities Oh, is this a, is this actually a, a native term or is this something that is being imposed on us again by colonialism? Um, but it has, in general, it's been accepted fairly quickly, uh, through most native communities. A little bit slower though, uh, in the academic community and particularly among historians who can at times be a bit of a stodgy bunch and don't always embrace the newest thought that's coming out of, of, uh, Indian country. But it has, I would say, in general terms, it has now been, but now become commonplace, both inside and outside of academia, inside and outside of Indian country. So, I mean, as a historian from that stodgy tradition, who, <laughs> by your voice alone, one can tell is not American and therefore not a Native American. Yeah. How did you, you know, situate yourself to this history? Because even laying aside the question of indigeneity and who has the right to tell these stories, like... Mm. Transgender issues are as hot button of a, you know, a human rights issue as we have today. Yeah. How how do you approach that, I guess, delicately and ethically as a complete outsider? You know, I, I've made a career out of uh, writing books that my many of my colleagues have said will be career suicide. Um, and so I know when they say that I must be onto something that's really going to push people's buttons and make them think. And so I tend to persist with those topics as a result of that. Um, you're right. Yeah, I'm originally from Australia. I've lived in the U.S. now for over 20 years. So my accent goes back and forth. But I'm conscious all the time of, of, of being an outsider and being deeply respectful of the indigenous communities that I work with. Some people will tell me that, you know, they just refuse to talk to academics. And I understand that completely. Um, there's a long history of 
of malpractice when it comes to medical research, archaeological and anthropological research in North America, uh, and in settler colonies generally, as it relates to indigenous communities. And, and a lot of that hurt still exists throughout Indian country. What I'm trying to do is trying to write history that is indigenous-centered and serves those the, the communities that I'm writing with in a, and as I say, a respectful and um, historically accurate, culturally sensitive uh, way. And I would add that the thing, the thing I've found over the years is probably two things. One is the hostility in general about the work that I do. If it's come from anywhere, it's come from white readers and, and white people more generally. It hasn't come from African-American or Native American audiences and readers per se. Yeah, it strikes me, especially in writing about Native American culture, that writing with people is a very appropriate way to put it, because mm. as you point out in the book, much, if not most, of the written history of Native Americans before the 20th century, even in the 20th century, was written by white people, you know, mm. by colonizers. And a lot of it was extremely offensive, if not flat out wrong. Yeah. How do you integrate oral history into the question of, you know, these little morsels of written history, what little there is? Mm. Yeah, that was that was a major issue in writing this book, because the the archives of colonialism are, I mean, they do a, a violent disservice to the memory of Native communities from from the 1500s forward. And so it does take time to sort of look into the gaps of the archival record to try and read against the grain of some of those sources and to really try and get into the head of, of the various colonizers to figure out why they might have been representing two-spirit people as sodomites or hermaphrodites or badash or any a number of these offensive terms and labels that they deposited uh, into their writing and then goes into the archive and ultimately informs the, the historical record and the way scholars write about this history. So you have to take those at face value for what they are. But then what I did with this book was when I interviewed people for the book, I, I talked about the sources that I was finding. And in some cases, I shared those sources with people and, and, and read uh, pieces of that material to them to get their response, right? So this is, this is sort of deals with the layers of historical understanding and meaning that has always driven a lot of the, the work that I do um, to try and understand history on its own terms, but then how we make sense of that history in our ever-changing present. It's also why I wanted someone like uh, Raven Heavy Runner, who's a two-spirit elder, Blackfoot citizen, to critique the entire manuscript uh, before he wrote the short foreword for the book. Um, and Raven was just a joy to work with and offered his, his feedback. He's just a wealth of knowledge and inspiration. And so that type of uh, working with people was really incredibly important to me to do. I'd love for you to talk about a specific example of integrating, you know, this problematic historical record with what might actually be true. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the ones that you open with is that of the Spanish uh, explorer, shall we say, de Vaca, coming to North America and then writing 
about and encountering the Kofita Kakei community? Yeah, so Devaka encounters a number of matrilineal communities as he makes his way uh, through the American South. And the Kakika he, he meets is overseeing a matrilineal society which is in the midst of uh, what seems to be a fairly extensive drought. Um, so there are environmental pressures that are impacting the community's social and economic well-being. The issue for chiefdoms at this time was that they, they were all dealing with these environmental changes. There were flows of immigrants, sort of climate refugees, moving around um, large parts of North America. And so this brought into question the authority of some of the leaders of these chiefdoms because their authority is really based on the ability to persuade and to provide for the people um, in their communities. And so the Spanish arrive at the worst possible time in, in that sense. I don't want to give the entire story away, but the sense that you get from the sources is that the Kakika is trying to sort of get the measure of the Spanish and figure out whether she can use them in some sort of alliance, whether it's a trade or a military alliance against other chiefdoms that are incredibly hostile towards her chiefdom and her community. Um, and it's clear that as she leads the Spanish towards uh, what the Spanish hope will be riches, right? The typical European story of, of searching for mineral wealth in the Americas. She clearly at some point during this journey makes the decision that these are not people to be trusted, right? And so absconds mysteriously. And the nature of the relationships that she has with people who the Spanish perceive as either male or female brings her, her reliability into question in their minds, right? So compounding seemingly what we might understand today as sort of gender-bending relationships and then her apparent deception of them and then absconding. This all plays in the minds of, of uh, the Spanish at the time against these people as trustworthy. In actuality, I think what we can, we can read this as an example of a leader of a matrilineal society uh, making strategic decisions that she hopes will be in the benefit of, of her community. She's made the assessment that these Spaniards are not to be trusted. And so you see examples of that over and over again throughout um, the Americas in the 16th and 17th centuries. Whether we're talking about the Spanish or the French or the English, I mean, they just, they really struggle. The, the men who come over here and encounter that type of power in the hands of, of people they perceive as female or people who are male-bodied but taking on female roles and they see those people as being honored in their respective communities, say in the Illinois country, for example, um, that just blows the minds of Europeans. They cannot seemingly grasp why people that they perceive as deviant or unnaturally in positions of, of power uh, would be so respected and, and held in awe in their communities. So you have a culture clash that, that plays out, and sometimes that clash plays out in physical violence on the ground, as we've alluded to, uh, and at other times it plays out in the violent nature of the record that is left for historians and other scholars to comb over into the present. Right, or even the violence of assimilation, you know, after conquest with yeah. 
Indian schools or other kinds of forced integrations, removals, etc. Well, that's another piece of the story. If you fast forward into the late 19th and 20th centuries, is that there was a very explicit effort to a take and in some cases abduct children from their communities and then be children who demonstrated uh, skills in or a proclivity towards adopting a gendered identity that was deemed unnatural or opposite their biological gender, whether we're talking about uh, Catholics or Protestants or government agents, they were just wholly against that and it caused enormous psychological violence to children and that violence sort of trickles down through the generations as well and impacts not only those children as they grew into adults, but their families and their entire kin networks. And indeed, it's something that still is talked about throughout Indian country today. I think the historical record gets a little bit thicker and maybe more reliable as we approach, you know, the 1900s, say. Are there records of matrilineal societies or of gender fluid people playing roles in indigenous communities through the 19th century and into the 20th? Or by Mm. that time, had it all been stomped out? There are. There are. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, the first thing I would say about that is I never think the historical record is fully reliable. I always always approach it with a healthy uh, scoop of skepticism. But yeah, there are. I mean, there are communities that do hold on to their traditions throughout the 19th century. A lot of that involves traditions um, being kept away from the prying eyes of Europeans, whether those are military offices or missionaries or government officials who are engaging in efforts to try and assimilate indigenous children and, and young adults into white society. So there are there are strategies then that have to be used to hold on to traditions. That doesn't mean stuff isn't lost because there's a good deal of information and knowledge that is lost in the cauldron of colonialism, which is why in many communities, these traditions of what we call today two-spirit are not necessarily there. And so people have got to invent new traditions. They've got to tell new stories. And that's something that a lot of um, native literary scholars have been encouraging for some time now, is it's okay to invent and create new stories. Um, indeed, that's a lot of what indigenous futurism is all about. But in many cases, there was a recognition that these traditions were important and the role that people played, um, these two-spirit roles that people play, whether as educators or as caregivers for children, uh, as name givers, um, the list of roles goes on and on and on, um, that yes, these were special and important roles in our communities historically, and there needs to be some sort of pipeline with which we can pass these down. And so elders tried to hold on to the stories and relate them to their children and their children to their children's children, so on and so forth. Um, in, in a way that was done away from those prying European or Euro-American eyes. And there's a wonderful quote that I included in the book where there's a correspondent to one of the gay magazines in, I think it's the ni- early 1980s, 
where they basically say that if you white people knew what was really going on in Indian country, you would have tried a lot harder to assimilate this, um, or words to that effect, right? So people got very good at holding and hiding, if necessary, from U Europeans, this very important knowledge. Um, the other thing quickly is that not all communities, uh, I should point out, had traditions of, of two-spirit in their societies. And so there's not necessarily a tribally specific language to describe those identities. And in other cases, the impacts of colonialism do lead to changes in the way people who we would see today as two-spirit are perceived, right? So, so ostracism does become an issue for some people who, who embody this identity of two-spiritedness uh, in their communities as a result of, of colonial thinking sort of infiltrating and filtering through native life. So the answer really to the question is it's, it's really complicated. Yeah, strikes me as incredibly difficult to talk about in general or even specific terms. One, because of like the sacred nature of a lot of these practices and traditions. Yeah. And, and two, because as you, you know, there's hundreds of societies, there were even more. So how could you possibly cover everything or even come up with a word that describes it? I think it does a disservice too to, to Native people to homogenize and just to say mm -hmm. that they're, and that's one of the issues that is a topic of discussion uh, is, is to what degree is, does Two-Spirit homogenize? I mean, this is a, a concern that some people have, and I talk a little bit about in the book. But I think one of the responses to that is if you view Two-Spirit instead of as a noun, but as a verb, as something that is active and constantly changing and, and, and evolving, um, then you have a way of, of circumventing that concern of, of homogenization and, and falling into stereotypes. And my hope is for this book that it will become something of a launching pad for Two-Spirit peoples to continue writing their own histories about this to give new life to and new meaning to over the coming decades. We have links in the show notes to Gregory Smithers' new book, Reclaiming Two Spirits, Sexuality, Spiritual Renewal, and Sovereignty in Native America, as well as to the cutting-edge work of some contemporary Two-Spirit artists. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. <laughs>